All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats, and as you do, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at Newbury Church. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. We are in the middle of a series entitled The Seven Churches in Revelation, where as you can imagine, we're just walking through and looking at the seven churches in Revelation. We're on the sixth church, so we will look at it uh, look at the sixth church, the church in Philadelphia this morning. We are obviously going to take a little break from Revelation for Easter next week, and then we will come back and finish the week after that. So we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 13. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Revelation chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 13. I think I got those. Oh yeah, I was in the wrong place. I'm sorry. This is what the Word of God says. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. We thank you that we know you better because you have spoken to us through your word. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask for physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is all about Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist makes the statement regarding Jesus. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, John understood that when you encounter the living Christ, the Savior of the world, there is something about him that demands your all. There is something about him that demands a preeminence, not just a preeminence in the world at large, but a preeminence, a first place in each and every one of our lives. He must increase and we must decrease. There are some throughout the centuries who have lived lives that have kind of fleshed this out for us in visible ways. One such person was a man named Nikolaus Zinzendorf. He was born into Austrian nobility in 1700. 
And many assumed that Nicholas would follow in his prominent father's footsteps and find a career in government. However, from a very young age, Nicholas took an inclination towards the Word of God and and displayed faith at a very young age. And the course of his life changed in in 1731 while he was visiting Copenhagen just on a, a trip. He met a converted slave from the West Indies. And this man, though he was a slave, wanted so desperately for others to come to know Jesus and he was trying to find someone who could go back to his homeland and preach the gospel to his people. Zinzendorf, who was already critical of slavery and believing in the necessity of Christian unity, he went out and found two volunteers for this man. They would be the first Protestant missionaries of the modern era. Zinzendorf believed that the greatest thing that could happen is for people to trust in Jesus. He once said, I have but one passion. It is he, it is he alone. Within two decades, Zinzendorf sent missionaries around the world. Zinzendorf is famous for telling every missionary before they set out onto the field, preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. Zinzendorf's life testified to the statement he made that I have but one passion, it is he, it is he alone. Zinzendorf understood and believed and lived out the reality that the purpose of the Christian life, it's not to make a name for yourself in this life. That the purpose of the Christian life is not to live a calm, easy, and comfortable life that just goes with the flow. The purpose of the Christian life is to make much of the great Savior who has saved our lives. And like John the Baptist said, he must increase and we must decrease. And our text this morning is a very interesting text. This, this letter of the church in Philadelphia is quite unique compared to some of the other letters because it teaches us a very similar lesson, but in a very unique way. The letter to the church in Philadelphia is a letter that actually teaches us more about Jesus than it does about the church. Now, now track with me here because I think I'm on to something. In many of the letters that we've looked at so far, the letters to the other churches, there, there has been such a great deal of time spent dealing with the problems of the church, the mistakes of the church, the reason that they were present, why the church was falling short, what was causing the error. But here, in a letter written to a church that has no rebuke, has no correction, a letter that highlights the faithfulness of the local church, it actually teaches us more about Jesus than it does about the church. And maybe there's something to that. Maybe the entire structure and focus of this letter is poised to teach us that when a church is being faithful, the church isn't put on display. Jesus is. And perhaps a test for whether or not a church is being faithful is when people look at the church, do they see the church elevated or do they see Jesus elevated? I mean, let me put it another way. and I'll just get a little bit more personal for those of us who are family. When people look at new breed, when they think of new breed, do they see us for our programs, for our vision, for our preaching style, for our worship style, for our attempts at diversity, or do they see Jesus? Maybe it's not even when other people look at the church. Where do your eyes go when you look at new breed? Now, please understand, none of those things are bad things. I like our program. I like our vision. I like our preaching style. I hope I like our preaching style. I like our worship style. I like our pursuit of diversity. 
None of those things are bad things, but those things cannot be the primary thing. Because when we look at this letter to the church in Philadelphia, we see a faithful church, but even more than we see them, we see Jesus. Now let me, let me show you this. In verse 7, the letter begins as, as all of our letters have begun with Jesus introducing himself and introducing the church. And verse 7 tells us the intended audience. Revelation 3 verse 7, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. So this letter is addressed to the church in Philadelphia. Just for the record, to avoid any confusion, this is not the Philadelphia that's in Pennsylvania. Okay? This, this was written a little bit before the establishment of that city. Letters addressed to the church in Philadelphia, and this is actually the only place in Scripture where Philadelphia is mentioned. The Bible doesn't talk about the city or the church anywhere else. But we do know some more things about the city and the church from history that will help us understand Philadelphia a little bit better. The, the city was actually established around 189 B.C. by Eumenes II of Pergamum. So he was a king in Pergamum who established this city. And so by all accounts, compared to the other cities we've looked at, this is a relatively young city. It was created in 189 B.C. You've got to remember these letters were written in about 95 to 96 A.D. So it's only a couple hundred years old, which is not that old for a city. But the city is named because of Eumenes' love for his brother. Philadelphia literally means the city of brotherly love. And Eumenes loved his brother so much that he established this city which his brother Attalus would later reign over. But what's interesting about this city is the intention behind its founding beyond a brother's love for his brother. Attalus, the one who would reign the city, wanted the city to be the center for the Hellenistic way of life. He wanted to promote the Greek lifestyle in the midst of a Roman world. And so one commentator calls it a center of missionary activity for the Hellenistic way of life. So they wanted to promote the Greek culture, the Greek way of life, how they did things above everything else. So right off the bat, you get the sense that being a Christian in Philadelphia is not going to be an easy thing. Because by very nature of being a Christian, you were living a life contrary to the intention of the city. The city was about elevating everything that was Greek, and Christianity is about elevating everything that is Jesus, and those two things, they're not going to work well together. Christians were not trying to promote the Greek way of life. They were trying to promote Jesus. And so, so Jesus identifies his audience. He says he's writing in the church in Philadelphia, and he says this about himself. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. So what does this teach us about Jesus? Well, Jesus begins, and he says that he is the Holy One, and he is the true one. And Jesus is reminding the church in Philadelphia of two significant things. First, by saying that he is the holy one, Jesus is reminding them that he is God. The title of holy one is designated for God and God alone. We see it in Isaiah 40 verse 25. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Asks the holy one. Or Habakkuk 3.3, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. So Jesus, right off the bat, is reminding the church in Philadelphia that He is God. He is no mere man. 
But he's also reminding them of his reliability. He says that he is the true one, alethinos, the true one. And what's interesting about this word in the Greek is that it's not usually attributed to people. It's, it's not really attributed to any person in the New Testament and not even in other Greek writings. It, it is a special kind of trustworthiness. It's a special kind of reliability. It is one that is so sure that it's not attributed to people like you and me. And this tells us something about Jesus. It means that Jesus' trustworthiness is not like other people. You do know people will let you down, don't you? You, you do know that. You know that your family will drop the ball. Your friends will fail to show up at times when you really need them. Your church will struggle to live up to the covenantal commitments that it has made to you. Your pastors will fail to care for you at times in the way that you need to be cared for. But Jesus, Jesus is holy and true. Jesus knows what you need and he has a perfect record of never failing. Now I want to be clear, Jesus' trustworthiness does not mean you can trust him to do whatever you want. Uh, let me say it like this. I, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. One of my early jobs was uh, I worked at Blockbuster. If, if you don't know what Blockbuster was, it was an amazing place. You could actually go in and pick up a case that had a movie in it. Amen. And then you went and rented it for an ungodly amount of money for one night, if it was a new release, went home, watched it. All right, we're done. So I worked at Blockbuster. I was a manager. And I remember this, this popped into my head as I was working on a sermon. I remember that one time uh, I, I was a, a shift manager. So I had a team of people that worked under me and they did their, their shift managers a little different. You, you were actually the boss of these people. They, you always worked with the same people. There was a store manager there, and I remember that we were, we were in this meeting. It was me and the store manager, and there was an employee there, and he said, man, I think we're going to have to let him go, and it kind of caught me off guard. He was a guy on my team, and I said, well, why do you have to, to let him go? He said, well, he's not a reliable person. We keep asking him to come in and cover some of these shifts, and he's, he's not able to do it. He said, I think we should let him go. Think on it, we'll meet again. And so I went home, and I thought about it, and I said, man, is this guy really unreliable? And I started to realize, I think we have very different definitions of what reliable means. Because for me, this was a reliable employee. We told him we expected him to work on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. He agreed to work on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. If we asked him if he could cover another shift, he would tell us, no, I can't cover another, another shift. So he always kept his word. He showed up when we hired him to show up. He, he did what we expected him to do. But what I realized is that for my boss, reliability wasn't someone doing what they said that they were going to do. Reliability was doing what he wanted them to do. And what I'm trying to tell you is that we don't judge Jesus' reliability by him doing what we want him to do. But one thing I know about Jesus is he has always kept his word. There is nothing that he has said that he has never delivered on. There is no promise that he has made that he has failed to bring to fruition. He might not do what you want, but he is always reliable to do what is best. And it's almost as if Jesus is affirming to the church in Philadelphia that you have not trusted in a powerless Savior. You have not forsaken the world for a meaningless God. You have trusted in the true God who is faithful and reliable in the midst of a world that is filled with dangers, trials, and snares. 
there is a God in heaven who will never fail you. And so this begs the question then, if all this is true, why is it that so many Christians are more concerned about what the world thinks about them than what Jesus does? See, even as I was pondering this this beautiful truth that he is the holy one, that he is true, that this is who our Jesus is, I found myself asking the question, why is it that so many Christians live as if the world opinion, world's opinion of them matters more than what Jesus thinks? And you don't have to say amen because I know it's true. I look what's going on in the world around us and I see the silence of Christians. How fearful we are to say something that might label us a bigot or, or, or a hateful person or, or, or too conservative or too liberal. And we are so afraid of what the world thinks that we've punted on faithfulness. Why is it that we care so much about what the world thinks if this is true of our Jesus? I'm reminded of what Isaiah writes in the last verse of Isaiah chapter 2 where he says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what value is he? What value is he? See, here's the thing. We don't need to be overly concerned about what the world thinks, but we need to be overly concerned about what Jesus thinks because he is the holy one. He is the true one. He is the reliable one. But on top of that, he's got the resume to back it up. He says this. He says, he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. The key of David is an interesting statement because with that statement, Jesus is affirming that he is the Messiah that was promised from long ago. Because the key of David speaks to the authority that David had to be the king of Israel. And Jesus says that he possesses that same authority. Jesus is the Messiah. And here, here's why that's so significant. Here's why Jesus says it. Because like Smyrna, Philadelphia had a large population of Jews who lived there. You remember we talked about Smyrna. That too was called a place where it was a synagogue of Satan. Smyrna had a large population of Jews, and these Jews had religious exemptions from Rome, which allowed them to refuse to participate in worshiping Rome. Because we have to remember, for Roman citizens, the, the, the Roman government was not just a government, it was also their God. And so they worshiped it, but Jews had exemptions from that. They said, listen, we're an established religion, we don't worship you, we worship a different God. And Rome was like, that's fine, pay your taxes, be good citizens, we'll let you worship whoever you want to worship. And the assumption is that the Jews disregarded the Christians. They said, listen, they're not part of us. They're not one, they don't have these exemptions. We don't claim them. So I don't know what they're worshiping, but they're not, they're not truly a part of the family of Israel. And so likely, just like in Smyrna, the Jews proclaimed the Christians were not a part of them. They were not Israel. But here, Jesus is reminding the church of who they are, that they are indeed the true Israel. Because Paul says it like this in Galatians 3, 7, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Jesus is declaring that he is the promised Messiah. Now track with me. Jesus is the one Abraham placed his faith in. Jesus is the true deliverer of whom Moses was a mere reflection. Jesus is the whisper that Elijah heard on that mountainside. Jesus is the redeemer the prophets longed for. Jesus is the king promised from the line of David whose kingdom would endure for all of eternity. But he's not like earthly kings. 
We see this even as we consider this Sunday. It was, I went back and forth on whether to do a Palm Sunday uh, sermon, and, and I decided not to, but I knew I had to bring it in. But we, we see it even with Jesus when we consider Palm Sunday. When Jesus enters the city for a coronation like no other, there, there were no court representatives present. There were no national ambassadors. There was no red carpet. There was a borrowed donkey, some clothes, and a palm branch laid on the road. And the people were crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the savior of the world. And those who place their faith in Christ, they are the true children of God. And so Jesus, when he says that he has the key of David, he's reminding the church that despite what the Jews say, despite what Rome says, despite what other people may think about you, I know who you are. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Because Jesus says this, he says, I know your works. I know who you are. I know what you do. I see your faithfulness. And then he says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. Now, we have to sit with the weight of that statement for just a moment. Because in in the verse before, Jesus already declares that what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And here he says that he has placed an open door in front of the church. Again, one that no one can can shut. Well, what is the door referencing? Well, the door references the kingdom of God. We see it in the very next chapter in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. John says, after this I looked and there, there in heaven was an open door. So, so the majesty of what Jesus says is this. Jesus is reminding them that the people around you say that you are not my children. You are not welcome in their presence. The government doesn't welcome you as its citizens. But I am telling you that I have opened a door for you. And what I have opened, no one can shut. And we have to understand what a comfort this must have been to the church. As one commentator notes, he says that the Jews may have expelled Christians from their synagogue. But Jesus has given them access to his presence. And has shut out those who are the unbelieving Jews. And no one can reverse his decision. There's a lesson here for us in that. It's a twofold lesson. First, it reminds us that faithfulness may very well expel us from society. Now listen, the reason I bring it up is because we know that on an intellectual level, but even as we mentioned practically, sometimes we, we fail to remember that. Like I'm, I'm going to put it as plain as I can. Society should not welcome your views. The culture should not welcome your views. They shouldn't like the way you think about marriage. They shouldn't like the way you think about race. They shouldn't like the way you think about the image of God. They shouldn't like the way you think about sexuality. The way we live is counter to the world at large. So again, why are we so desperate to have society accept us? But second, not only does it remind us that faithfulness very well may expel us from society, it reminds us that the reward of that faithfulness makes makes being expelled from society worth it. I mean, we'll talk more about this in a minute but, minute, but notice their hope. It's that no matter what happens on earth, faithfulness will not be overlooked by Jesus. He knows who they are. He's opened a door for them that no one can shut. And if this is true, then the chief aim of Christians cannot be to make society accept us. The goal is not to make ourselves legitimate in society or to make a name for ourselves. I mean, this is somewhat of a side note, but I think that's why we see so often people attach their, 
their faith to politics. Because politics is accepted in society. And so rather than being content to just stand in the faith that we have, we try to attach it to something that has a little bit more validity. And I'm not picking on either party. I think you got Democrats who do it. You got Republicans who do it. You got people that believe in wild stuff that do it. They attach their faith to their politics because they're trying to validate their faith in society. We don't need society's validation. If the King of Kings has opened a door for us that no one can shut. But here's the thing. When our aim is for society to accept us, we are trying to accomplish something that's just not in our power to do. We're trying to build our name, a name for ourselves in a way that we cannot. But look what Jesus says about the church there in verse 8. He says, you have but little power. But here's the good news. It might not be in our power to create a name for ourselves. But it is in Jesus' power. Keep reading. He says, you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Now there's so much here. That's a sermon all in itself. But first, pay attention to the church's power. The church in Philadelphia was faithful even though it had little power. And that's not meant to be an insult. Jesus isn't mocking them. It's to their credit that they had a little power because when you are weak, you are in just the right position for the power of God to show off. When you are weak, when you are lowly, when you are humble, you are a prime candidate for the power of God to be displayed in your life. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 27. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of you of noble birth, but instead God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Again, because when you are weak, you are in just the right position for the power of God to work. God does not need us to have strength in our own power. Jesus can and will do what we do not have the power to do. So when the world is, is against us, it is not even possible. It's not within our power to make the world bend to our desires, even when those desires are righteous, but it is in the power of Jesus. But what that requires of us then is a trust in that reliable Jesus, a trust that God will vindicate his saints in his own time. I'm just going to say it how I want to preach it. You don't always have to prove yourself right. That's what I'm getting at. You don't have to always prove that you are right. You don't always have to prove the validity of your viewpoint and your faith. That your call is not to convince people of Christianity's place in society. Your call is to be a faithful witness to the fact that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead for the forgiveness of his sins. That's your chief aim. Now, please understanding, I'm not saying there's not a place for apologetics. I'm not saying there's not a place for cultural engagement. There absolutely is. I've, I've joked about it before. My, the doctorate that I'm pursuing is in faith and culture. Like that, that, we should care about that. It's important, but our chief goal cannot be to convince society that we deserve a seat at the cultural table. Our goal is to love Jesus and proclaim his name and believe, to truly believe that God will vindicate us in his time, and he will. He might not vindicate you when you want. Oh, it's hard when people talk trash about you. 
It's hard when they slander you and malign you and persecute you for all sort of ri- ri- sorts of righteousness sake. It is hard to not try to defend yourself. But what this text is poised to teach us is you don't need to defend yourself because you have a God who's good at vindication. But it will be in his timing and not yours. Our goal is to love Jesus and proclaim his name believe that God will vindicate us in the end. And he tells the church, here comes the ultimate vindication for them. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. That's wild to me. Like, yeah, we're going to bow at Jesus' feet, but Jesus is saying that there will be those who have slandered us, who have rebuked us, who have persecuted for us, and in his judgment, he will make them bow at our feet, not to elevate us so that they can see that Jesus really did love us. Jesus will make the enemies bow at the feet of the church. And Jesus will declare, hear me, not that we were right on politics, Not that we understood every cultural issue. Not that we got everything right. No, no, no. He will declare, but I loved them. They will know that I love you. And that's powerful. Not that we were right. Not that we perceived things correct. But that we loved him and he loved us. You see, the world can take whatever they want from us. They can label us whatever they want to label us. As long as at the end, Jesus says, you were faithful and I love you. But then Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. So Jesus acknowledges the faithfulness and endurance of the church in Philadelphia. And as a result, he says, you will be kept from the hour of testing. Now I'm going to admit this on the front end. There are a lot of faithful Christians who disagree on this passage of scripture and what Jesus means when he says that I will keep you from the hour of testing that is, that is going to come on all those who live on the earth. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily get into all the disagreements and opinions and beliefs. If you want to know about that, how I arrived at the conclusion I arrived at, we can talk about it later, grab coffee. I'll fill you in on all my end time views. But what I believe that Jesus is saying is that the hope that we have because of our faithfulness, it's that we will prove our union with Christ and because we are united with Christ, we will not face judgment at the end of this life. The hope we have is that while we hold fast to Christ, he will hold fast to us. And, we will, and he will be our ultimate deliverance and salvation. So this goes back to what we talked about last week. We can either have the world acknowledge us or we can have Jesus acknowledge us before the Father, but we can't have both. And the hope for the church in Philadelphia is that though the world hates them, Jesus will proclaim their names before the Father. And because of his righteousness, they will be counted as righteous. Can I tell you that that's still the hope for the church today? That Jesus will proclaim our names before the Father and because of his righteousness, we will be counted as righteous. But I don't, I don't want to gloss over verse 11 where Jesus says, I 
am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Church, if you've missed most of what I've said this morning, which I, I hope that you haven't, um, but I see your faces, so I'm not sure. If you've missed everything else, please hear this. Jesus is coming back. I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it because we have lived the entirety of our lives without seeing him face to face. We might live the entirety of our life here on this earth without him coming back. But the reality still stands that Jesus could come back at any moment. And when he comes, every struggle Every hardship, every rejection and slander that we have experienced because we have held fast to him. Not because we were stupid. Not the slander and the persecution that comes because we made bad choices and misrepresented Jesus. But the struggle and the hardship and the rejection and the slander that we have experienced because we have held fast to him. We will know in a moment that it's all been worth it. And so Jesus says, hold on to what you have. I'm coming back. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And that crown, that's going to be something amazing. The crown is a picture of the reward that we will receive because of our faithfulness. You do know that Jesus will reward your faithfulness. That's so hard for my brain to grasp. Because in my mind, the very fact that I get to be with Jesus for all of eternity, what else could I want? But God says, there's something else on top of that for your faithfulness. So all I'm saying is that like, if, like that's our God, right? He gives abundantly more than we could ever think or imagine. He says, your faithfulness will be rewarded. James says it like this in James 1.12. He said, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, says in 2 Timothy 4.8, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Jesus will reward our faithfulness, and that is why we are faithful. The Bible speaks of the crown that we will receive for a bunch of different reasons. I'm excited. I'm just going to tell you. I'm not trying to boast. I'm just saying there's a crown for pastors. Talks about when the good shepherd appears, shepherd the flock among you, shepherd the flock, because when the good shepherd appears, he will give you an unfading crown. I'm going to tell you, I love you, but I don't stand up here every Sunday because of you. It's because Jesus is worth it. And one day there will be a crown of unfading glory. I'm excited about that. I'm going to serve you as long as the Lord gives me breath in my body, but this ain't about you. I'm trying to get my crown. I want it. That's why I deal with y'all's emails. That's why I fight over the budget with you. It's not because I like it. It's because faithfulness matters. And, And there are opportunities for faithfulness for you too. And so hold on. Don't let anybody take your crown. Don't sell it for 30 pieces of silver. It's not worth it. Hold on to what Jesus has for you. There is a blessing that is coming that is better than anything this world has to offer you. It's hard to see it now, but it's coming. And the reason that we can wear the crown is because of what we celebrate and remember 
over the week ahead, we get to wear the crown of life and righteousness because Jesus wore a different crown. He took the crown of thorns upon himself, the curse that we deserve because of our sin. You do know that thorns did not exist until after the fall. That crown of thorns is a picture of Jesus taking the curse upon himself so that you and I might have righteousness in life. He did not deserve to die, and yet he died a sinner's death for sinners like you and me. He was buried, raised from the dead, and there is hope and victory in Christ and Christ alone. We can wear the crown of life because Jesus took the curse on his head. And this was the hope for the church in Philadelphia. But can I tell you, this has to be our hope as well. And it is extended to us because look at what Jesus says in verses 12 and 13. So the one who conquers, that's not just Philadelphia. That's you, that's me. To the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now some of this imagery is lost on us, but it is magnificent. Let me unpack this a a bit. First, Jesus says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. Now, we got to understand the weight of that statement for the hearers. Because when Jesus said this, there was no temple standing. Jesus says to them, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And I have to believe they're listening, thinking, well, hold on, Jesus, 25 years ago in 70 AD, like while some of these folks were still alive, like the temple was destroyed. We haven't been able to rebuild it. We don't have a temple anymore. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're you're not getting it. I'm not talking about I'm going to rebuild it with stone and rubble. You will be the pillar of the temple. But on top of that, I have to imagine that they were thinking if they knew their Bible really well or their Old Testament, that well, in the new Jerusalem, there won't be a temple because all of creation will be God's temple. So when Jesus says that you will be a temple in a pillar in the temple, he is reminding the saints of their unwavering place in God's kingdom. They cannot be shaken. They cannot be moved. He is reminding them that that we're here on earth. Temples can be destroyed in glory. You will be an eternal pillar in the temple. You will be secure and nothing will be able to shake you away from it. He's pointing the believers to something better than this world. You do know that this place is not your home, right? No, 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 I mean it. Like you do know that we should not feel at home here. This is but a temporary stop on the way to glory. And if that's the case, then we got to be okay to feel a little out of place in this world. We have to be a little bit more comfortable with embracing the peculiarity of being a sojourner and an exile in a foreign land. Like we are passing through. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a saint of old, killed in Germany. Adolf Hitler personally had him hung because of his Christianity and his faith. He once said that, we we, we recognize his death. He died on April 9th. So was that two days ago? I think in 45. And, and, And as he was preparing to die, he said that death is the last station on the road to freedom. Yo, we're passing through this world. But, but notice this, then Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God. 
the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And he says, and my new name. Now, here's why I love this. I'm almost done. Track with me. The church in Philadelphia pursued Jesus at the expense of trying to build a name for themselves here on earth. And there was a temptation to build a name for themselves. The Jews were out there saying that they weren't really God's children. The government viewed their religion as a cult and refused to validate it. But the church was convinced that faithfulness to Jesus, though it would be hard, would be worth it more than trying to build a name and a reputation for themselves. And as a result, they will get a name that's better than any name they could have built for themselves. They will receive the name of Jesus. And this name not only tells them who they are, it tells them where they're going. And, and I know it's a better name. I know it's a better name than any name I could build for myself. And you ask me how I know it's a better name because I know how Jesus got that name. The Bible tells me in Philippians 2, it says that, that Jesus existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Here it is. And for this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the thing about the name of Jesus. It's never needed you to defend it. It's never needed you to uphold it. It's never needed you to argue for it or to claim it because no one can take away Jesus' name. Jesus did not get his name from men so he cannot lose it at the hands of men. He received it from God the Father and no one can take it away. And what that means for you is that in Christ you are marked with His name. And it doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what people think about you. Your name in Christ is secure because Jesus is secure. Listen, Jesus is not worried that this, wor that this world is going to sully His reputation. Jesus is not concerned that the people of this world do not recognize him as king because he knows there is coming a day when because of his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that same name is the name that is promised to you if you are faithful. How is it that the world will bow at your feet? Oh, it's not because you built a strong enough name for yourself. It's because you bear the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has and is and will continue to reign for all of eternity. This is extended to you and to me. You know, and it's weird. I know we got one church left, but as we've been drawing towards the end of this series, I've been more convinced as I've studied these seven churches that these seven churches will define in some way, shape, or form every church that exists. I think, I think Jesus covers the full scope of how you can get it right and how you can get it wrong. And so the question that we have to ask is, which of these churches will we look like? And I just tell you at the front end, I want to have the testimony like the church in Philadelphia. That though it wasn't easy, Though at times we found ourselves with our backs up against the wall, though at times we were forced to bend, we never broke. 
we never abandoned Jesus and we sought with everything in us to let the world know that we love Jesus because he first loved us. And if that is our testimony, then what we read in this passage is our hope that Jesus will make us a pillar in the temple of God. We will be in his presence and nothing will be able to remove us from him. We will have the name of God written on us. We will know that we are not our own, but we belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We will have heaven as our home and we will be made fully new. And all of this, because Jesus is who he said he says he is and he did what he said he would do. He is holy and true. He is the savior of the world. He is our God and our king. And he is our hope for now and forevermore. And so let me, let me just end with this, New Breed. This church, New Breed Church, it's not about me or Pastor Lance. This church is not about you and what you want or what you desire. It's not even about the community we love and are placed in. New breed is about Jesus. And as long as we keep him first, the same promises of glory given to Philadelphia are extended to us as well. This has been and always will be and must be all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this testimony of our faithful brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, God, who we will one day meet in glory. And we won't have to wonder if their sacrifice was worth it. Because we, like them, we will receive the reward of being faithful. God, I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that we would be a church that loves the world around us so much that we are willing to be ostracized and spoken ill of. We are willing to be slandered as we continue to share the love of Jesus with them. God, and I pray that when serving you is hard, that we would be reminded that our hope is not that things would be easy in this life. Our hope is in the fact that one day we will bear a new name and a new city and we will be a pillar in your temple for all of eternity. God, give us grace to walk faithfully in this world. And God, help us to believe that you are coming back. And like the stories you told in the Gospels, I pray that we would we would not be found sleeping, that we would not be found unprepared, but that we would be living and serving and worshiping as if you were coming back. God, there's nobody like you. There's no king like you. There's no savior like you. And so we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and